0: Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Just a couple of quick announcements as we get started. First of all, we're delighted to have Bruce Sands here with us today as our guest lecturer. Secondly, to get credit for today's presentation, the code is on the wall, J7RV. If you text that into the appropriate place, you will get credit for that. I want to remind you that there are credits for learning about the culinary medicine. It's a quarter credit of CME, and as you do that and put their code in, and I don't have it in – I actually did write it down. There there was their code, but – you can get a quarter credit for learning about culinary medicine. The theme today was snacks, (laughs) and so there was a winter fruit salad that was prepared. I hope you took advantage of that and enjoyed that. There was also a quiz today, which was what could you do to be mindful of portion sizes or to give appropriate portion sizes. Of the multitude of answers, one was picked at random, and so the answer that Christina Rutherford gave, was (laughs) weigh your food, weigh your food. So come up and get your, um, I'm not so sure it's a, it's a great snack, it's got health associated with it. I think it's chocolate covered peanuts or something like that, but a healthy one. There you go. What does it weigh? Yeah, you'll have to come back and tell us what it weighs. There was another answer which was think European which is not bad. It wasn't picked, but it's not bad, although there, it varies where you are in Europe. So, But thank you for that entry. Without further ado, I'm going to ask Corey Siegel to introduce today's guest. Corey, as you know, is an associate professor of medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute, and he is our section chief in hepatology and gastroenterology and hepatology, and he's also the co-director of our IBD center among the center. And Bruce has been my mentor and
1: guide ever since uh, both through the labyrinth of academia and in life and I've always appreciated that. Bruce uh, is known worldwide in the world of gastroenterology. Few gastroenterologists don't know who he is. He's published over 200 articles including GI and of course Corey, who is uh- not just a mentee, but really a
2: friend and a wonderful colleague um, and great to be back in New England, where I spent so much of my life. So um, for the next maybe forty five minutes or so, I want to take you through a journey um, through the world of IBD, and uh, I realize this is a more general medical audience, so i won 't get deep into minutia uh, for for people who are really deep into the weeds of IBD. Uh, but really give you a lot of background about where things are. And I called it a decade of discovery and development just because there are a lot of Ds in that. But I'll cover more like 20 years, 25 years. Here are my disclosures. I think they're also listed on your handout. And what I want to do is give you some understanding of the epidemiology and manifestations of these diseases, uh, predominantly Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and an understanding of the pathogenesis as we understand it um, today and how that actually has affected um, the development of novel agents and also some understanding of uh, what the current approach to treatment is. So, but you know, I know we're way far up north here and the accent is a little different from New York City and i love to show this slide. Uh, This is only about two major manifestations. They are considered separate diseases and syndromically they are different Um, We're talking about Crohn's disease, which, as you know, uh, can affect anywhere, as it said, from mouth to anus, but has a predilection for the distal small bowel, the proximal large bowel. And uh, this uh, presents as abdominal pain in the majority of patients, diarrhea as well. Um, You could have one or the other or both. Um, It's less common to see bleeding. That would be more common in patients who have uh, colonic disease and maybe as many as 15% or so of patients will present with perianal disease, um, fistulas or sometimes fissures or other manifestations. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, as you should know, is really confined to the large bowel. It is a mucosal inflammation, It starts uh, distally in the rectum and proceeds proximally to involve different lengths of the bowel. And therefore, almost everyone presents with ulceration of the bowel and therefore, but you see this sort of stippling of the light reflex, and that is an inflammatory infiltrate in the mucosa. And it's sure if it's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Um, How often does this happen? Uh, It's about, uh, you know, estimates range between 5 and maybe as high as 17% of the time. It's also possible for a diagnosis to be switched over time as someone manifests one syndrome or another more clearly. Uh, but for the most part, people remain in a stable diagnosis. It's only 5 or 6% of the time that we end up kind of switching diagnoses. And we would never say that someone has both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis simultaneously. It's just that we were wrong before and we're right now. <laughs> And it's important to remember there are, of course, many other causes of bowel inflammation. This is really just a partial list. I take great pride in the fact that a chapter I wrote for Sussinger and Fortran with Corey uh, roped him into that, uh, we had the distinction of having the longest differential diagnosis in the entire textbook. It covered an entire page of the text. So it is a very long differential diagnosis, but mostly for the internist. The distinction is between the more common cause of diarrhea, abdominal pain, which would be irritable bowel syndrome, and inflammatory bowel disease, which is clearly not the same thing. So if you want to think a little bit about what are the features that point you more toward a diagnosis of Crohn's disease, which tends to be the one that we have a very lengthy delay in diagnosis. On average, it's probably two or even four years before someone actually pins down a diagnosis in a patient with Crohn's disease. And parenthetically, it is important to make an early diagnosis because early treatment produces better results. So what can you recognize as pointing you more toward Crohn's disease? This is an interesting study coming out of Europe where they looked through the literature about various presenting features of Crohn's disease, and they tried to then look backwards historically at which features were found more often in Crohn's disease than in irritable bowel syndrome or in normal healthy patients. And the things that panned out most often were perianal fistulas or abscesses or perianal lesions, not hemorrhoids. That counts very powerfully. Having a first-degree relative with confirmed IBD, and more on that in a moment. Um, Weight loss of more than 5% of your usual body weight over three months. Chronic abdominal pain over more than three months. Nocturnal diarrhea. Mild fever. And then there are a couple of um, kind of double negative things here just to keep the scoring system that they created positive, which were no abdominal pain 30 to 45 minutes after meals, predominantly after vegetables. That's kind of a hard one to implement, and no rectal urgency. Um, If you hit a score of eight or more, um, at least in this retrospective look, and it requires prospective validation, I would say, the sensitivity and specificity are excellent, above 94%. And the positive likelihood ratio is really good, and the negative likelihood ratio is really good in the useful range for clinical practice. So you can think about these things as you see a patient with undifferentiated symptoms. The other thing that you can think about are biomarkers of inflammation. And the one that at least has a little more specificity when you're trying to differentiate irritable bowel syndrome from Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis would be a fecal calprotectin. And so if you see someone with a fecal calprotectin that's 40 or lower, which is really low, Your patient has less than one percent probability of having IBD, so I think this is um, really actually a useful laboratory test that any any internist could get in uh, trying to uh, figure this out. Now we've developed different classification systems, which have been linked to the prognosis of these diseases, or at least helps us characterize them better. And the more complex one is for Crohn's disease. So we differentiate between age at diagnosis. And as I'll show you in a moment, this can affect people across the entire spectrum of life of all ages, but tends to occur quite often in young people, um, who also seem to have a worse prognosis over time. And we talk about localization of disease, either the small bowel terminal ileum, the colon alone, or some combination of ileum and large bowel. And then there's an added distinction. Some people have upper tract disease, which we call L4. And you can have L4 on top of L1, 2, or 3. And then there are complications of Crohn's disease because of its transmural nature. You can either see stenosing disease, which we call B2 disease, or penetrating disease, meaning abscesses or fistulas, uh, which is B3. And then another uh, distinguishing category is perianal disease, which I mentioned before, and that can be on top of any of the other behaviors. And these have a great deal to do with the ultimate prognosis of a patient with Crohn's disease uh, because stenosing disease does not behave uh, the same way that penetrating disease, and people tend to breed true to their phenotype over time. So just to show you what we're talking about here, this would be B1 inflammatory behavior. You can see the ulcerations Um, in the bowel. You can see some edema, some loss of vascular pattern. And note that this is also a patchy disease. So if you look further down, this part of the bowel actually looks pretty normal. And that patchiness is quite different from the continuous inflammation that you should see in ulcerative colitis. Second complication is fibrostenotic disease, so here you see this long stricture. Not only that, you also see a little bit of fistulization behind this stricture, and that sometimes happens, so these phenotypes are not absolutely pure. And then finally, penetrating disease. So the disease can perforate through to another loop of bowel, small bowel to small bowel, small bowel to large bowel, often the sigmoid, since the terminal ileum is actually very proximate to the sigmoid colon, to the bladder, to the vagina, anywhere. Um, you can see gastrocolic fistulas, anywhere you can imagine, I've seen it all. So there really is mounting evidence that these really are... Um, Uh, not just phenotypically distinct, but molecularly distinct uh, forms of the disease. First of all, uh, the treatment implications are there. People with penetrating complications are less likely to respond to TNF blocker therapy, and we'll talk about the TNF blockers and their role. Um, Even if you treat very early in the course of the the disease, if the patient is bound for a stricturing complication, you will not actually delay that complication with anti-TNF therapy. But more than that, you can see molecular signatures, either distinct uh, bacterial species like Ruminococcus in stricturing disease or Valinella in penetrating disease, and you can see certain genes that seem to regulate one form of the disease or another. Um, associated with stricturing risk, or with fistulizing risk. In the case of stricturing, it has to do with extracellular matrix production being upregulated, it seems. Question. Yes? What's,
0: can you go back a slide? Yes. What's the, what's the relative risk that rumenococcus provides for stricturing disease or veval for or penetrating disease, or are these just weak
2: associations? It, it, it is not a... It's certainly not a three-fold uh, hazard rate. Um, it is something more, it's something weaker. I don't remember the exact one, but it's probably, uh, you know, 1.5 or less, 1.7. So not very, very powerful, but suggestive that. I'm not saying that that's a causative. It's an association. That's really it. Um, For UC, it's much simpler. We characterize the disease as proctitis or more extensive involving up to the splenic flexure, which we call left-sided colitis or beyond the proximal to the splenic flexure would be extensive colitis. And then there are gradations of severity, either remission or mild disease. Moderate would have more than four stools per day and some systemic uh, signs of disease that are minor. And severe would have six or more bloody bowel movements a day, heart rate more than 90, really a sick patient. You can see that these definitions are somewhat overlapping. They're not all mutually exclusive. So this is a a little bit more of an approximation. And I have to point out that even though these are intestinal diseases, there are systemic manifestations. Um, Skin manifestations, classically being pyoderma gangrenosum, erythema nodosum, eye manifestations, iritis, scleritis, episcleritis, bones, you can see osteopenia, Uh, osteoporosis, um, particularly in Crohn's disease, um, both from the disease and from treatments like steroids, uh, arthralgias and arthropathies, um, kidney stones, uh, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, uh, propensity for gallstone disease, thrombosis. This is only a partial list. The most common manifestation actually is fatigue. More than 85% of patients will present with fatigue. It can be fairly profound and it does not always improve even after resolution of the inflammation for reasons that aren't always clear. Now to turn to the epidemiology of these diseases and get a little bit closer to why they may be happening, um, these have classically been uh, seen as diseases of the developed world. So North America and Europe have the highest incidence rates of uh, both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Historically, it's interesting when you look in a country where these diseases are emerging, such as they are in Asia, you see ulcerative colitis preceding in incidence um, Crohn's disease by about 30 years. And why there's that distinct epidemiology is really unclear. Um, and I'll show you some genetic commonalities in these diseases, um, but what the environmental factors are are not completely clear. Some in places like Australia, South Africa, Japan, you see a moderate incidence, and in the rest of the world, it's either not studied or a lower incidence. Well, this is the work of uh, Gil Kaplan, who I think was my second IBD fellow ever, who also is um, really quite a talented epidemiologist, and he did, Uh, an extremely huge, rigorous meta-analysis to look at the rising incidence rates across the globe. And from this picture, you generally see that uh, most everywhere um, you see rising incidence of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So these are, even if the rates are far lower in places like China and India, the rates are rising, and consider how large those populations are and how important this epidemic will be over time. Um, From my own work in the state of Rhode Island, we created an incidence cohort there. And what I show you here is what I mentioned earlier, that the peak incidence, uh, at least in this study, for Crohn's disease was in the second decade of life. Um, In fact, about 25% of patients are diagnosed in their first 18 years of life. Um, Many other epidemiologic studies would show a second peak in the fifth decade of life. We didn't actually see that. And in UC, we seem to show a a sort of later peak, more toward the third or fourth decade, um, which is a little different from what other studies have shown, but um, our methodology was extremely rigorous. And if you look at incidence rates for Crohn's disease, it's something like 14 cases per 100,000 per year. And if you look for ulcerative colitis, it's about 15, so very similar rates for both diseases. And if you look at the prevalence in the U.S., it's about 0.5% of the population, something like one and a half million, and maybe as high as 1.6 million people in the U.S. have these diseases. So they're rare, um, but not that rare. Um, everyone knows someone. Turning more toward what's going on here, um, you know, there are some characteristics that are a little bit different histologically in Crohn's disease in UC. I've already alluded to the full thickness nature of the inflammation of Crohn's disease and the mucosal inflammation that is seen in ulcerative colitis. Uh, there are exceptions to everything. In severe UC, you can actually see extension to involve the full thickness, but by and large, that's true. What you shouldn't see in UC are these um, non-caseating granulomas. And while that is characteristic, it is not pathognomonic. There are lots of other conditions that can cause granulomas in the bowel. And conversely, you do not need to see granulomas to confer a diagnosis of Crohn's disease. In fact, even in surgical specimens, you don't find granulomas more often than about 40% of the time. What you can see in either disease really are these collections of neutrophils in the colonic crypts. This is called a crypt abscess. You see this uh, bunch of neutrophils there. And the mystery of these diseases is the following. This is normal, healthy colon. You know, these sort of uh, tubular crypts that are very parallel and regular, lots of uh, mucin-containing goblet cells, but also look here in the mucosa and submucosa, there is a physiologic amount of inflammation. This makes sense. We have a large surface area to defend in the bowel, and so the immune system of the bowel is always in a state of readiness for attack, some sort of pathogen making its way. And what we see here is marked inflammation. You see this crypt abscess here, in fact a ruptured crypt. You see that some of the crypts uh, have dropped out. It's much more irregular and it's packed with these blue cells which are mononuclear cells and neutrophils of all sorts. So this would be fine if this were salmonella, but this is a persistent feature of untreated inflammatory bowel disease. So the mystery is why, after Salmonella, this sort of inflammatory process resolves. And in IBD, it just goes on and on and on unremittingly, unless you do something about it. So for many years, the model of pathogenesis, you know, we know that both of these involve mucosal inflammation, they're clearly both environmental and genetic factors. First, I'll mention the genetic uh, observations, which are concordance in monozygotic twins, higher in Crohn's disease than in ulcerative class, about 36% concordance. If you look at uh, sibling relative risks, of course, a disease like cystic fibrosis, um, you get a, a lambda score of about 500. For Crohn's disease, it's more on the order of 13 to 36, which is higher probably than things like type 1 diabetes and schizophrenia. Um, a little bit lower for ulcerative colitis. So for a long time we've known that there must be some genetic component. About one in five patients with a diagnosis of IBD will tell you that they have a family member who also somewhere in the tree has IBD as well. So it is a question you should ask. We also know there are environmental factors, and you can already glean that from the epidemiology when I tell you that these diseases are rising in places like Asia where the genetics are rather different and, in fact, detailed Uh, genetic analyses for risk alleles in known to be in Caucasian populations with IBD are somewhat different in Asian populations. So there must be environmental factors, maybe factors related to industrialization or development of the world or hygiene, um, not entirely clear. But I'll mention two very interesting ones. One is smoking, And this is the one epidemiologic factor that cuts two ways for the two diseases. So smoking is a risk factor for Crohn's disease. It also worsens the prognosis. It is actually protective for ulcerative colitis. So largely, you'll find that uh, patients with UC are non-smokers or ex-smokers. And it's not a rare occurrence to see the onset of ulcerative colitis in someone who just quit smoking. Don't tell them to go back to smoking. Um, that might work for the UC, but not good for their general health. The other interesting one is appendectomy. So, people who undergo an appendectomy for appendicitis early in life um, are actually relatively protected for ulcerative colitis, not for Crohn's, but for ulcerative colitis. And why this is, is really uncertain. Um, it it really remains a mystery. And actually, this observation has been reproduced in animal models of colitis, interestingly. Um, I'll mention a a little bit about the genetics. And uh, the the first and still most powerful genetic risk locus is the nod 2 or CARD15 gene. And this is an interesting molecule where there are CARD domains which lead to NF-kappa B activation, so this is pro-inflammatory. Um, On the other side are these leucine rich repeats, which are really receptor sites for muramyl dipeptide, which is found in the cell wall of every bacteria that exists, basically. So the mutations are loss-of-function mutations that lead to Crohn's disease, and therefore a failure of binding of these bacterial muramyl dipeptides, and somehow this leads to ongoing inflammation uh, in some people with Crohn's. Um, The knockout, interestingly, does not develop Crohn's disease, so it's not sufficient simply to be deficient in NOD2 to develop ileitis. So how much of a factor is this? This is the most powerful genetic locus, but it's still not useful as a clinical test to predict who's going to develop the disease. So if you look at the frequency of these risk alleles, um, they're certainly more frequent than in control populations, but still, your relative risk may be high, but since the the actual rates of disease in the population are so low, you can't do a Nod2 test and say you're at, you know, 50% risk of developing Crohn's disease in your lifetime. Even if you're homozygous for two of the risk alleles, um, you probably don't have more than a 3 or 4% lifetime risk of developing Crohn's. But it's interesting that to observe that the nod 2 has to do with um, interaction with the microbiome. So it has something to do with sensing of bacteria in the cell, and that's a clue to the pathogenesis. And in fact, more detailed genetic analyses in these diseases show that most of the risk genes are in common between Crohn's disease and UC, with some rare exceptions like nod 2 or for ulcerative colitis, certain MHC class um, spe- uh, specificities. Uh, but most of them are in common. And furthermore, the pathways have some commonality with other conditions like leprosy, like susceptibility to mycobacteria, and also other immune-mediated diseases, a whole variety of them. So, you know, this gives interesting clues as to the pathogenesis um, in relation to the immune system and its interaction with the host microbiome, which certainly could be affected by environmental factors. So the central challenge of autoimmune diseases, not just IBD, and many people have thought that mycobacteria, for example, um, you know, intestinal TB looks very much like Crohn's disease, but you don't find mycobacteria in Crohn's disease. Uh, We can debate that later if there are any anti-mycobacterial theorists in the crowd, but that seems to be true. So it's not an undiagnosed mycobacterial infection that leads to Crohn's disease, but rather it's a genetic architecture shaped in response to historical pressures um, to protect against very significant intracellular pathogens, uh, like the plague, for example, or like TB, perhaps. So, in a distinct, uh, cleaner, different environment, that genetic architecture passed down over, over generations confers an increased risk for IBD. There are lots of there's lots of evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence, though, about the role of the gut flora in IBD. Uh, there are some patients who seem to improve with antibiotics and a very old treatment of Crohn's disease would be to bypass bowel so that the luminal contents are not going through, and hence bacterial products. Uh, Patients respond to elemental diet, which also alters the flora. Uh, There's some evidence that some probiotics might be effective, and it's interesting that there are autologous uh, responses to your own gut bacteria in a lot of patients with IBD and against numerous bacterial antigens. And if we look at animal models, and there are a whole host of of genetic animal models that develop colitis or IBD of some sort. Um, there are different immunologic models, but none of them really develop colitis until, in germ-free conditions, until you introduce non-pathogenic bacteria, just normal commensal bacteria are enough to set off the disease in these genetically susceptible animal models. Not only that, depending on which bacteria you introduce into the model, you might see very aggressive colitis, more moderate colitis, or even protection against colitis, suggesting that the role of the bacteria is really quite important in shaping these diseases. But this remains a, a subject of intense, um, intense experimentation and investigation, but it still is not entirely clear. We do know... That the gut microbiome in patients with IBD is disturbed in a number of ways. You can see that the distribution uh, along the longitudinal axis of the gut in people with IBD is very different from the normal host. And I would say um, the characterization has been that there's a dysbiosis in IBD and, in fact, a decrease in the normal host. Um, kind of robust variation of bacteria, so you, send, you see less diversity of the host uh, microbiome in the patient with IBD, and it's thought that that might actually be preceding the inflammation of IBD, not a consequence of the inflammation, because you can actually, in animal models, transmit IBD just by transmitting pro-inflammatory bacteria. So that's enough to tantalize you, but if you are interested in more, there's so much more to read about this. So I'm going to turn back to more practical things and talk about the treatment of these diseases in the last bit. Um, These were the treatments that were kind of current when I was a GI fellow. And so we had five amino salicylates, and I'll talk about those. Those are simply anti-inflammatory medications, uh, somewhat related to aspirin, but not the same. Um, antibiotics, to some degree, may be useful in Crohn's disease, especially in post-operative operative uh, prevention of recurrence after ileal resection uh, for fistulizing disease and for <clears throat> pouchitis after uh, colectomy and J-pouch formation, uh, but really hasn't been proven in other roles. We'll talk about the pluses and minuses of corticosteroids, which are still often used and still are useful but have many drawbacks. And then we had immune modulators like 6-mercaptopurine and azathioprine for Crohn's disease, methotrexate, and for severe uh, acute ulcerative colitis, cyclosporin was in vogue, although not much used anymore. So we'll start at the bottom. And in ulcerative colitis, but not in Crohn's disease, the 5 aminosalicylates Im- are a platform therapy for the treatment of these diseases, uh, of this disease. In mild disease, mild to moderate disease, this is reasonably effective. And the granddaddy compound is sulfasalazine. It was a combination of uh, five-immunosalicylate diazo-bonded to sulfapyridine, which is an antibiotic. So this was uh, devised in the 30s, actually, as a treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. But as I told you, a lot of patients with UC might have arthralgia, so it was tried in those patients. Lo and behold, their colitis got better, too. So was it the antibiotic or was it the 5 aminosalicylate You know the answer. It was the 5 aminosalicylate primarily. And so the problem is if you just give someone 5-ASA and they swallow it, most of it will be absorbed in the small bowel. But the effect is topical on the large bowel. So you have to find a way to deliver it distally. So there are many different ways of doing that. You can put two dia- uh, diazo bond two 2,5-ASAs together, and that would be olsalazine. You could create inert carriers, such as with balsalazide, or you can coat it in many different ways, or you can give it as a suppository or an enema. Lots of different ways of delivering this. Bottom line, though, is they're all more or less the same in their efficacy. The induction response may be 50 to 70 percent for remission, um, meaning healing of the mucosa in mild to moderate UC, 15 to 40 percent. These drugs have an excellent safety profile. They're extremely well-tolerated. They do not suppress the immune system. A little trick um, to know is it's helpful when people have distal disease to combine both oral dosing and rectally administered 5-ASA, and if you give both together, you see greater efficacy in treating their symptoms. Um, so, that's a little trick that we often use just to get more to the diseased area because a lot of the symptoms in ulcerative colitis relate to the proctitis and irritability and tenesmus from that proctitis. So, when patients fail that, uh, before I turn to steroids, I'll just say you'll see many uh, prescriptions of 5 ASA for Crohn's disease, but there really is no good evidence that these drugs work in Crohn's disease. So I recommend that you don't use these drugs in Crohn's disease. As for steroids, steroids were life-changing in the 1950s when Trulove, Sydney Trulove at Oxford, first treated severe UC with cortisone. The case fatality rates went from like 50% down to 5% or less. And so this was really groundbreaking. It was also maybe one of the first examples of a good randomized controlled trial in medicine, so very historic. Um, you can see steroid response rates can be very high, uh, placebo response rates not as high. Um, these are effective agents. And in meta analyses in ulcerative colitis, you know, you see about two thirds of patients responding, but patients also, once they need steroids, it, it portends that they have more aggressive disease. And the likelihood that they're going to need a colectomy for their ulcerative colitis becomes quite high after their first introduction to steroids. Not because of the steroids probably, but rather uh, simply because it's more aggressive disease, I think. And the real problem is um, additionally that of course not everyone responds. About 16% with UC don't respond. You'll see partial remission about 30% at one month. And at one year, about half the patients have a prolonged response. About one in five, one in four become steroid-dependent. That's a real problem. And as many as a third might end up needing colectomy. So not good. And therefore, we need other things that are steroid-sparing. And so historically, we had turned to the so-called immune modulators, that's a euphemism for immune-suppressing medications, um, such as azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. These are effective maintenance agents. They don't work quickly, so they're not good inductive agents. They're not tolerated by at least 15% of patients with a variety of uh, intolerances and side effects, um, such as nausea, malaise, lymphoma risk, infections, pancreatitis, myelosuppression you have to watch for. Methotrexate, again, not fast-acting. It's really only used for Crohn's disease. Um, You know, it's fine for a patient who is not tolerant of azathioprine or 6-MP, um, but it's probably better given uh, parentally, either IM or sub-Q, once a week only, please. Don't make the mistake that I did the first time I prescribed this, of giving it daily. That only lasted three days before the patient called me and said, am I supposed to be vomiting all the time? and nausea is a problem even if you give it once a week, which you should. Um, it's also teratogenic, so caution with young women, hepatic fibrosis, rare interstitial pneumonitis. So these are problematic medications. They've been very helpful over decades, um, but ultimately not effective or tolerated by a lot of, a lot of patients. And furthermore, with the thiopurines, we really understand that there's a risk of lymphoma, There's an increased risk of lymphoproliferative disease that you see in this study called CISAM while the patients continue on the medication, and then when they discontinue it, um, the risk returns back to baseline risk. Um, This risk is higher in men and higher as you age. So if you have a male who's older than 65, the risk becomes quite high. And conversely, for young males, there's a risk of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, which, while very rare, is um, going to be fatal if it occurs. So about when I started uh, my time as a junior faculty member, the biologics were just being investigated, and I had the good fortune of studying CA2, as it was called then, which is now infliximab. It's a chimeric monoclonal immunoglobulin G. It has high affinity for tumor necrosis factor, and really everyone who was around at the time remembers this cover photo on uh, the Journal of Gastroenterology showing before and after pictures of these rake ulcers down the barrel of the colon, and then four weeks later, this tremendously uh, incredible healing that occurred. I I don't think anyone had seen anything like this with any other agent. A picture is worth worth a thousand words, uh, but uh, this may not be representative of every patient, of course. And this has led to a whole slew of other biologic therapies, and there are now four anti-TNF agents that are approved for use in various indications in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and then there are two other biologics now. One is vetalizumab that I'll talk about, and the other is ustekinumab. So uh, these are the other TNF blockers. The only one that is really uh, a little bit different is Certolizumab Pegol. It's an FAB fragment against, uh, that, that binds to TNF, um, and it's pegylated to extend the half-life. All of these are potentially immunogenic, even though adalimumab and golimumab are said to be human antibodies. They are still artificial constructs and still have the potential for immunogenicity, just as inflixmab does. And then, as I said, we have this anti-integrin antibody called vetalizumab and an anti-IL-12-23 antibody called eustekinumab. So um, how—what— What can you get from the TNF blockers? This is infliximab. Uh, This is the so-called sonic study, and we're looking here at six months uh, clinical remission without steroids, and that obviously is a goal. And you can see that in um, more than half of patients. And interestingly, you do better here with combination of infliximab and azathioprine together. Um, If we want to talk more about this, we can talk about strategies to do monotherapy and make it more effective by doing... Um, therapeutic drug monitoring and aiming for higher drug levels with the infliximab as monotherapy, but for now, this would be kind of the standard of care. And in ulcerative colitis, the drug is also effective. About two-thirds of patients will respond, about one-thirds of patients will remit. So very effective, and also effective, as effective as cyclosporine for acute severe UC, and of course, much safer I would say, and much less bother than giving cyclosporine. Corey, um, have you, when's the last time you gave cyclosporin here? More than eight years ago. And even at Mount Sinai, which was one of the originators of cyclosporin, we've gone from dozens of hospitalizations just for cyclosporin to maybe a handful in a year. So this is by and large not, not used anymore for acute severe UC. What are some of the problems with TNF blockers? Well, uh, the safety profile, while very good and certainly better than steroids, um, still there are, there are some issues. You do see serious infections. You can see that uh, steroids are more implicated in mortality, but you see serious infections occurring more often both with infliximab and with steroids. And uh, not only are there infections, there is also risk of malignancy, primarily lymphoma reactivation of hepatitis B and tuberculosis, so all these patients get screened beforehand, Um, skin cancer, which is really a little increased risk in melanoma. Uh, Psoriasis actually increases paradoxically, since this is also a good treatment for psoriasis, Um, autoimmune phenomena, including lupus-like syndrome, immunogenicity, and then very rare demyelinating disorders, exacerbation of CHF, so moderate CHF is a relatively strong contraindication to treatment, and an occasional liver toxicity, frank hepatitis. So, um, really, just to put the issue to rest, you know, it's not just the thiopurines that increase the risk of lymphoma; the TNF blockers do as well. And if you do combination therapy, um, then you can see that the risk is additive, and this approaches one in a really one in a thousand person years. So if you continue combination therapy for 10 years, you know, that's one in a hundred. So it's not insubstantial, it's still not a huge risk, but patients have to know about it. And finally, a problem with these agents is loss of response. The 15 or 20% who have primary non-response, as well as the adverse events. So that's all by way of saying that while these are really great drugs, we also need other drugs, so we're happy that a few more have come along and more on the way. We'll talk about this one. Um, You know, natalizumab, which is an anti-alpha-4 integrin antibody, was first tried in Crohn's disease and is highly effective. But as I'm sure you know, it's also associated with a high risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy which is really hard for a gastroenterologist to pronounce. Um, And so there needed to be more selective ways of blocking the trafficking of effector lymphocytes into the gut mucosa. Fortunately, alpha-4 beta-7 integrin is the zip code for these cells into the bowel, and it interferes with its interaction with MADCAM uh, on the vascular wall within the bowel. Um, as opposed to just blocking alpha-4, which will block interaction with MADCAM and with VCAM, thereby interfering with CNS surveillance. So this drug, vetalizumab, an anti-alpha-4 beta-7, has a much improved safety profile, and really, to date, no cases of PML have been observed. How well does it work? For induction, it works okay, pretty well, I would say, for ulcerative colitis. You see clinical response approaching half the patients' mucosal healing about forty one percent of patients, and the drug really does very well as a maintenance agent so across the board, um, you see every just about every endpoint hit over placebo with maintenance therapy, uh, including importantly corticosteroid free remission and this is the only biologic agent that has this written into its label as an indication to achieve corticosteroid-free remission in UC. Um, However, it doesn't work as well in patients who have had prior exposure to a TNF blocker, which suggests that this actually would be better off as a first-line treatment rather than a second-line biologic. So you see that here. In Crohn's disease, the story is a little bit different. If anything, it looks even a little bit weaker as an inductive agent. It just barely squeaked through its co-primary endpoint, hit clinical remission, missed enhanced clinical response, and doesn't seem to work at week six much at all with patients who have had prior anti-TNF failure. However, if you extend treatment... Um, over um, 10 weeks, you actually see rates that increase. So the moral of the story is for patients with prior TNF blockers who have Crohn's disease, if you're going to use vedolizumab, you have to give it about three months to have any inductive effect. Fortunately, the maintenance effect is still pretty good, although even here, maybe not quite as good as in ulcerative colitis. What's great is the safety profile. Really, we see nasopharyngitis increases, but not other serious infections to any degree. There's maybe a tiny hint of increase of things um, related to portal of entry of infection in the bowel, like C. diff or CMV colitis. But the signal is, even now, not very strong. So I still think this is a very safe agent. And we're going to see other agents um, in this class of agent that will make their way along. Um, We're studying blocking antibody to MADCAM, which is what alpha-4, beta-7 binds to, and also etrolizumab, which is an anti-beta-7 antibody, which is not only going to block interaction with MADCAM, but also with E-cadherin, which is what brings um, intraepithelial lymphocytes into the mucosa of the bowel. So we'll have a slightly different profile. That being said, um, it doesn't look terribly different from what I just showed you with Vetalizumab. It has about the same efficacy, not more. And also, similar to what I showed you, it doesn't work particularly well for patients who have prior use of TNF blockers. An interesting thing about this agent is there's a potential for a predictive biomarker, something that you could measure that might indicate a higher likelihood of responding to this particular agent. So if you look for alpha-E expression, um, by either by PCR or immunohistochemistry on colonic biopsies, the patients who have high levels uh, are the ones who are more likely to respond regardless of whether they're naive or experienced. Now, turning to the last uh, kind of agent, um, we're going to talk about blocking IL-12 and 23 And this has a basis in genetic studies because this is a known risk allele in both Crohn's and UC. And not only that, there's a protective allele, um, which suggests that if you interfere with IL-23, you might actually provide benefit for the disease. Now, the antibody that I'm going to show you blocks P40, which actually is found as part of both interleukin-12 and 23. So it's going to block both of these cytokines. So that agent is used to It has been used for uh, some time for psoriasis very effectively. And here in two studies, one for TNF-experienced patients and another for TNF-naive patients, you can see that this drug produces clinical response that's superior to placebo, better in the naive patients again, but still effective in TNF-experienced patients and has a very good maintenance effect over a year. This is clinical remission at week uh, 44. And uh, the last, very last agent, turning to another one that is about to be approved, is actually a small molecule, not a biologic. And we can talk about the Janus kinases, which sit below the cytokine receptor and uh, sort of transmit uh, the signal through STAT to the nucleus to lead to, gene transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So basically, these small molecules inhibit JAK and therefore prevent cytokines from having any downstream pro-inflammatory effect. The drug that is soon to be approved sometime between now and third week of June for ulcerative colitis is this drug, tofacitinib. It's already on the market for rheumatoid arthritis but the doses we're using and showing to be more effective are higher than used in RA. 10 milligrams twice a day is effective in induction over placebo. You can see it's not the majority of patients, but actually more patients achieve mucosal healing than achieve clinical response because there is a discrepancy between symptoms and what happens at the mucosa. And happily, this agent is... Effective in people who have had prior treatment with TNF blocker, just as it is in the naive patients. As you can see here, it's about as effective in both kinds of patients. So it could be used first line, could be used second line after a TNF blocker. There are a number of adverse events. Uh, there's a known risk of herpes zoster, so patients should be vaccinated beforehand, um, increased non melanoma skin cancer. There's not an increased risk of GI perforation, even though this also blocks interleukin-6, which has been associated with GI perforations. Um, And you will see, with some regularity, a bump in LDL and HDL cholesterol, but in proportion to each other and not thought to increase the cardiovascular risk. Finally, I'll mention manipulation of the microbiome itself. And this is really in its infancy. So we're doing crude fecal microbial therapy. And this was by Sudarshan Paramsathi, who's an Australian GI fellow who is currently our IBD fellow at Mount Sinai. And this was published um, uh, last year. This is a very intensive regimen of FMT, uh, five days a week uh, for eight weeks of fecal microbial therapy. That's stool folks, uh, given as an enema, first time as a col- in colonoscopy. And, but importantly, you see a clear signal that this approach actually does something for some patients. Um, it's intense, so can we devise better ways? So, if you actually collect the stool under anaerobic conditions, you can do a far less intensive FMT and actually see steroid free remission rates that are far superior to, uh, just autologous FMT. So, this tells you that The future will include manipulation of the microbiome, but probably in more elegant ways than stool transplant. So uh, just to conclude, there's a really uh, interesting understanding of the pathogenesis of IBD. Biologic therapies are increasing the range of options for patients with IBD and also improving outcomes over time. We see anti-adhesion molecule approaches, anti-cytokine approaches, small molecules. All these things are making their way, and there's also a growing interest in microbiome. In fact, I predict that in the next five to seven years, we will have so many different kinds of agents, it will be a challenge to select which agent for which patient, uh, which is an interesting point to consider. Um, So thanks very much again for inviting me and for listening so intently.
1: Time for uh, a couple questions. Just a, a quick one, Bruce. I, I should have mentioned that now you're really sitting in the center of the history of inflammatory bowel disease at Mount Sinai as the, as the chief there and as the uh, beryl Crohn professor of medicine there. So there's no question that in the history of IBD that biologics were transformative. I mean, that, that changed the world, right, for how we treat these patients. What's What's the next thing? I don't feel that it's having 12 biologics on the market. I, I feel like there's something else that needs to transform what happens and what we're doing. And I don't know if you can just comment on on how are we going to get to getting 60% of our patients responding to drugs to something that's much better than that.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I wish I had a perfect answer. Um, I think one thing very clearly is early early. I won't say aggressive treatment, but early effective treatment of the disease is really critical. That is clearly a window of opportunity that is often missed. And I didn't show you the data here, but I showed it last night, that, you know, with TNF blockers, if you give combination therapy early in the disease, meaning before two years, um, you actually see much higher rates approaching what you just said. Um, Therapeutic drug monitoring will also increase these rates. So while this may seem to be nibbling at the edge, we can get more out of what we have. Um, But I think combinations of therapies will also be something that we'll see. Um, I think to do that effectively, we can't have everything addressing solely the immune system. We also have to address the microbiome component and also probably some component of healing of the mucosa or protection of the barrier function, which in all the genes that you see, there are different themes. One is um, interaction with the microbiome. Another is clearly um, barrier function of the bowel, um, as well as the third component of the immune system. So I, I think if we had rational, if we had agents that addressed all those things
1: and combined them, then we'd really be talking about truly effective therapy. William, yeah, I think probably probably have time for one question here. I'm sorry, and then William, please. Uh,
0: nicotine delivery as therapy, and is the, are the genetics of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis the same in Asia as they are in northern Europe?
2: So um, nicotine therapy has been studied um, primarily in ulcerative colitis, and um, has been studied as patches, has been studied as enemas, and does not appear to be effective. So that really hasn't uh, continued to be investigated. To my knowledge, no one is working on that right now. Um, With regard to the genetic architecture of IBD in Asia, it is different. For example, you don't find NOD2 in those populations, and yet they have what phenotypically looks like Crohn's disease. So it isn't all about the genetics. I think the genetics are a clue to the biological functions that are perturbed, um, but it, it is not solely about the genetics, and clearly, it, it's probably much more
1: about the environmental factors. Great. Well, it's just the top of the hour. Uh, I'm sorry, we better wrap up. I know Bruce will stick around for a few questions if, if you have them. Uh, thank you for coming, Bruce. Thank you for coming and, and joining us. Really an honor to have you here at Dartmouth. Thank you. <laughs>